to everybody out there, I just want to thank um, everybody for hopefully joining uh, today's discussion on disparities in mentorship. And uh, the uh, Twitter is going out live, so we'll get some questions as we go. Um, and then it's being recorded. So, Rian, I hope you're okay with us recording this. And yep. it will be hosted on a website. The website is www. Uh, and then the Dr. Journey to Better, DR Journey to Better. So DR Journey to Better, don't ask me to spell, dot com. And if you go to that website, that has the previously recorded talks as well as the one we're going to do today. Um, and with that, I'd just like to thank everybody for dealing with our technical struggles. And I'd like to welcome in Rianne Davies who is in York, Pennsylvania, and I don't exactly know your director titles, et cetera, but I would just say Rianne is a fabulous interventional cardiologist at York who's here to join us on a discussion about mentorship. How are you, Rianne? Um, well, thank you for having me. This will be fun. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> what, what is your title? Uh, oh, gosh. I don't know. Does a title really matter? But I guess I am <laughs> um, <laughs> Director of Complex Coronary, I guess, is what it is, technically. <laughs> okay. I think that's a great introduction to sort of something <laughs> we're going to talk about. So, Rianne, tell me a little bit about your training. So where have you, where have you been and what have you gone through as we set the stage for this? Okay. So I started at... Um, Penn State Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And that's where I did my general cardiology and my general internal medicine, actually. So I did six years there. And I was actually, you know, really wanting to stay there to complete my training by doing my interventional year. And I was fortunate enough to have people advise me or mentors um, advise me to step outside my comfort zone. And I, uh, went then up to Brown up in Rhode Island for um, my interventional year. And then I was fortunate enough to obtain a spot with you to learn CTO high-risk PCI for my second year or my chip year. Okay. So looking back along your career, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have influenced you in what you've done. Mm -hmm. It So Talk to me about people who influence you versus a mentor, and what does that look like in your head? Yeah, so I think um, people that influence you can influence you in a few ways, whether it's, like, good or bad, but it can also be within our career or outside our career. But I think sometimes influencing people is easier because you can just point them in a quick direction and tell them to go and um, see kind of what shakes out, whereas a mentor is somebody that I think of as, who's on that road with you for a lot longer period, maybe not indefinitely, but certainly gets you from a point A to point B or even a point C. But I think along my way, I've had several influencers, but I can think back and I see several very close mentors that I've looked up to for a variety of reasons, but one that have really encouraged me to stick with the original path, but maybe not the original plan. And, um, continue to kind of push my way into, you know, scarier, uncomfortable situations and um, figure out, you know, which, what I want to actually do with my life or my career. Okay. So, I mean, we can talk a little bit about good mentorship, mm -hmm. but we can also talk about the other side. In your, in your experience, have there been people who thought they were mentors, but they ended up being bad mentors? And, and what does that look like? Yeah, I'm sure if, uh, yeah, I, I think there are those ones that maybe I have thought, you know, whether or not they were in my sub, my specialty or kind of the people along the way, even as far back as like medical school and whether or not to even go into medical school and people who maybe advised against it. Um, or when I actually got into it, maybe advise that maybe I should try something else like research or something a little bit different. I don't know necessarily if they're bad. I think it's just a matter of knowing what you actually want and maybe finding the people that are going to help guide that path as opposed to people who might steer you away from that path for whatever reasons they may have. Maybe it's 
they think they're protecting you or they think they're helping you or they think they know you better than maybe you know yourself. And I think maybe that would be a bad mentor, maybe not the best of getting the best of advice from them. And and what does a good mentor then look like to you? I think a good mentor is somebody that listens to you, but also kind of pushes you to continue learning more or to continue going, you know, um, whether it's onto the next step, learning something that you haven't done before or, you know, getting uncomfortable in uh, a space that you've been before, but maybe doing something a little bit differently. Um, I think there's several ways to define like a good mentor and maybe sometimes it's just somebody that you can talk to or somebody that's willing to listen and be an active listener and kind of engage and ask you questions to help kind of direct you one way or another, but maybe not somebody that gives you the answer. Right. And one of the things obviously is, I mean, becoming a, an interventional cardiologist as a female is a, a very different journey than I certainly had to go through when I was doing it. Mm-hmm. And so part of that is when you were being mentored, I mean, there's a lot of discussion, I think, at this, and I guess I'm asking your opinion is, does your mentor have to be the same as you, the same race, the same gender, the j- same specialty, the same, I, I mean, I don't, I mean, I guess, you know, trying to open this up in a very delicate way so I don't become the old white guy and get in trouble. But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of discussion around that. I mean, and you're obviously involved in that now. So what do you, how would you look at that previously in your career? And how do you look at that going forward in your career? Yeah, I guess as I was early on, I didn't know any female interventionists. I got fortunate when I was at, at Brown to work with Dawn. But prior to that, I didn't have the opportunity to meet females within this space. So to me, all I knew were predominantly males that were interventionalists. I knew a lot of cardiologists that were male or, and female. Um, so I think initially I thought of the only mentors I really had in this space were male mentors. But as time kind of went on now, I've gotten the opportunity to work with uh, many amazing females in this space. But I don't think they necessarily have to be the same gender. I don't think they have to be the same race. I think ultimately it comes down to what you're looking for. I think there are a lot of people out there that can give us direction in different situations. It doesn't have to be a particular race or gender, per se. I think it just depends on the question that you're trying to sort through yourself. Yeah, so when you when you got out and practice. You know, you left fellowship, you went into practice, um, and obviously some challenges can arise in that situation. And How did you deal with those, and who did you get help from, and and why did you get help from them, and what, what was your thought process in sort of being somewhat different than the rest of people, I guess? Yeah, I, I, uh, there, there was a lot of challenges, and I think you know those well as well as (laughs) Kate and you know I think it comes down to I reached out to people that one I could confide in that I could trust that if I was going through a a sticky situation or I didn't know how to handle a situation um, or how to really even speak up for myself um, in the sense of being an early um, or one of the only female interventionist in my um group, my immediate group at my hospital now, you know, it, it's just different even when it came to um, having a locker room or having somewhere to like sit and have a, a moment to myself if cases didn't go well. So I found myself kind of falling back on the people that I trusted and confided in along the way that got me to where I was so that I felt more comfortable going to them and asking them for help or um, guidance as to how to approach different situations. And maybe they weren't completely aware of everything because, you know, it's, it's a little bit one-sided when you only hear my side of the story, but I think they were able to direct me um, and help answer the questions that, and the problems and uh, rise to the challenges that were in front of me. 
I was fortunate that um, you had come out and actually done some cases with me. So it was good that my group was able to learn from my mentor and, and um, see how things are done differently in different places, you know, so I think everything has its learning curve, um, <laughs> both for me as an individual, as well as uh, when as a new graduate coming out, like the partnerships that you're going into, like need to learn from you. And I think it's a, um, a, a developing relationship that can be a little bit challenging at first and at times. <laughs> No, that's that's a that's a very politically <laughs> soft way to do it. Well done. Thank you. I gosh, all this therapy's paying off. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, dang. <laughs> hey, so I gotta I gotta ask a question, and I this will come off wonderfully, I'm sure. What's it like when a patient calls you the nurse? Oh man, because I don't understand. I feel horrible about that, but I know it happens. Yeah. What's that like? You know, it's funny. Um, I guess you almost get blind to it after a while. Like you see it so much and you hear it so much. But I think, you know, it used to bother me more. Now it's almost like, oh, good. Like, at least you don't think I have any responsibility over any of this. But <laughs> in reality, I think um, it's, it comes down to education. I I work in central Pennsylvania where a lot of patients have seen female um, physicians and or have had them in different subspecialties, but the cardiology department, maybe not so much. And I think a lot of people have it in their minds that doctors are males, the nurses are females, and there's not really much of a mix. But um, it's funny because I work with a lot of amazing male nurses and a lot of other female positions in different subspecialties and and in general cardiology so I guess you just get used to it and you kind of try to educate the families and sometimes it it goes over very well and sometimes they prefer still that idea of well I want a male doctor but uh, you know it's just the it, it, it again is it's growing pains um and I think at first it really bothered me here even just the first so many patients I had that were expecting me as a, as a woman who has a name that could be pronounced Ryan. Many assumed that I was going to be even male when they did see me. So <laughs> it's been interesting. That'd be a big surprise. Maybe, maybe we need to talk about your gender yes. terms. Or yeah. something. I don't know. <laughs> hey, so, so how, you know, obviously a lot of people in this are academics. We work in a lot of practices in different places. How do we help change that culture? So stuff like that, because, yeah, you, you, as you talk about, well, you sort of got to rub it off. But it's like, come on, it's, yeah. it, people got to grow up a little bit. So, I mean, is there things we can do to sort of work on that culture? You have, have you ever thought about that? No, oh, that's a great, that's a great thought. Um, you know, I think the societies are doing a lot of things to promote women within their fields, particularly, you know, there's a lot of women in cardiology programs through ACC and Sky and um, a lot of advocacy going on around female physicians. But I think it really comes down to you as the physician and how much you really want to um, advocate for yourself too. I, I, you know, I'll never discourage a patient from getting a second opinion if they want to get one from a male physician, but I'll try to tell them, you know, how I can potentially help them and they can make a decision for themselves. And I hope that it's a good educated decision, but it can. It's got to be hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But but I do think there are, they are trying. I think there are a lot of ways to try to um, publicize, you know, females in this space as well as in other subspecialties. And I know through heart month, I had done a lot of outreach stuff for the community to really try to, get out there and talk to members within the community who have family members with heart disease or newly diagnosed themselves with heart disease and just try to um, make them understand that a female can be your physician and that sort of thing. So even as basic as it seems and maybe as time consuming as they might be at times, it, it might be worth it. Yeah. So let me ask you along your training pathway, because I, I, at least I've heard this and I just sort of on your were you discouraged to be an interventional cardiologist? Yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with, you know, uh, females in this space 
what you could probably answer this better, I don't think was very common, right? Up until even as recent as a few years ago, like you would see a one or two here or there, but there wasn't many um, females. And I think it was out of the norm, you know, and anytime something's not normal, everybody looks kind of back at it like, oh, that's weird. Why would you want to do that? And I think, you know, the uh, uncertainty of the radiation exposure, wearing lead, the challenges with the work hours, there were so many reasons people would tell me that this wasn't the career decision that was best for um uh, a, a woman or a small petite woman like myself, you know, it's just not what a lot of people thought of. Hey, compared to Kate, you are not small and petite. <laughs> Thank Let's you. Be honest. I take very, uh, <laughs> I'm very thankful for this. <laughs> I know. No, it, it's just, it is. And Jasmine, I mean, you, yes. you're like towering. Oh my gosh. I never realized I was so tall. I feel great. <laughs> but I, I was fortunate in the sense I worked with Dr. Gilchrist early on, Ian Gilchrist, and he, he really encouraged me to get into the space and, and really, really pushed me to like stay comfortable despite a lot of people maybe not being as encouraging. And um, I'm thankful. I'm so thankful for that because I feel like I could have got tripped up very early on and not been where I am now. So there are cool. many people that will come and go. And I think that's part of it, though, looking for the mentors that are going to guide you as opposed to giving you the right answer. It's not you don't have to do anything. You just do what you really are passionate about and ask the right questions to seek the kind of the right next step. So let me ask you another little challenging question. So when you're at a meeting, do you want to see a woman speaker because she's a woman or do you want to see somebody up there because they're really good at their job? I want to see somebody because they're really good at their job. I think that's that's the hardest part of this career. We we meet a lot of people who do or say they do a lot of things. And, you know, um, there's a lot of speakers out there. And you know this as well as anybody that just because you're on the podium doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing what you're talking about. And I think um, the people that are up there, that I want to listen and I want to actually learn from are the people that are doing what they're um, teaching and what they're advocating about. Um, otherwise it's just not as helpful if you're talking about what the person next to you does and you just assume you know it because when it comes down to the nitty gritty of it, you're just up at the podium just to talk at the podium and it's frustrating then for people that are in the audience trying to learn. So you, you've now got to do a bunch of live cases <laughs> and you've obviously been on the, the podium a bunch. That's very different than your day job. Yeah. How does that feel? Oh my, um, you know, I, live cases, I think are kind of scary. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I have that question for you. How, how do you feel when you do live cases? <laughs> I'm going to throw this one at you. <laughs> Like okay. so you, you've done hundreds of live cases at this point. How do they make you yeah. like, do you get any more nervous the night before? Do you worry about it anymore? Or, you know, or do you just kind of get in there and pretend like it's a normal everyday I, case? I, I mean, I would tell you when I first started it terrified. Yeah. Um, one, cause there's just, there's a lot of things going on in a live case. Mm -hmm. Um, and fortunately, you know, Joachim Schofer was one of the first people I could do a live case with from Germany, really gave me, you know, watching him set the room up really helped me out as, as you've seen, right? Which is everybody, we're going to focus on the patient first and teaching second. I think the other thing is that the, a live case is not a democracy. Mm -hmm. It's a and it's a benevolent dictatorship. And so you shouldn't, the panel's there for discussion, not to tell you what to do. If the panel's there to tell you what you do, you're in big trouble. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the other thing that I've I've learned, and I would, and you and I have talked about this, but I would, I'm sure there are other people listening probably have done live cases or might get to do live cases, which is don't show off. Yeah. That there are a lot of people to this day think they need to do the craziest, wildest, hardest case, mm -hmm. and. You know, a live case is to teach. Yeah. And doing something that is so far outside the realm of reality actually doesn't help anybody learn. Mm -hmm. And 
it's also not super safe for the patient. And I think that's a, a big advice that I would, I, over time, I got a lot more comfortable with. Just pick cases that we can teach and do something effective. I don't need to show off anything. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really important piece of it is what am I trying to teach? Not let me show you how great I am. And, it, and unfortunately, because I, I'll ask you this, which is I, I get the impression at times when I'm doing a live case that if I do it, it goes well, it goes efficiently. People are like, well, that's just Bill Lombardi. Yeah. And, and if I don't get it, well, it can't be done. Mm -hmm. But I think people miss the the work to get there, mm -hmm. right? I mean, people probably got like, Rian, you're amazing and you're fabulous and you have magic hands and you're the most, but like, do they see like the mad dog work <laughs> ethic, determination, um, the lack of finesse, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that you've had to deal with. And I, I so I would just say, I, I think that's, as you move forward as a live case operator is patient first, education second, Showing off is not for that venue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I and I think I think the other piece that's helped me is is sort of the Michael Jordan quote, which is you know I've raised up to fire the game winning shot and missed three hundred eighty two times. If I have a complication or the case doesn't go well, that actually is almost more educational than if I do some beautiful heroic look how amazing I am kind of case. Yeah. And I think that that mentality is really important is don't care about success, care about teaching mm -hmm. and the patient. You know, I think that's those are important things. Yeah, I think that is really important. And I think in some of the ones, the small things that I've gotten to do, you know, teaching when to stop is almost more important than trying to keep going and trying to problem solve and running the patient into more of a catastrophe than they would have had if you would have just stopped an hour before or half an hour before the next complication happened or something like this. But yeah. 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 I think, I mean, I, I guess that, that'd be a great discussion as you've gone along. What are some of the like basic advice you'd give people doing high risk PCI in regards to a mentorship training learning i mean do you have any i mean you've obviously done a dedicated year but how would you help people who are trying to do what you've done yeah i feel fortunate that i had my year and that's how i learn i learn through repetition you you know this i needed to do a thousand and one cases <laughs> to learn anything right so i i needed repetition and i needed repetition fast like I, I, that's the best way for me to learn but i think there's a lot of ways to learn complex or CTO skill sets, whether that's going to a course, having a proctor, um, but making sure that you're going to the right courses and you have the right proctors, because there's a lot of, again, it's just like the people at the, on the podium. There are people that say they do something, but they don't actually do it. And you have to make sure, or at least feel it out, like you can go and learn and see what did I get out of today? How many cases did I get to watch or how many cases did I get to be a part of and figure out if what you learn from those cases to take forward with you but to me I think the more I got to do something in a controlled environment the better off I was um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody needs to do that um, but learning the way you broke it down for me when I was there whereas you let me do so many steps and then you kind of did the rest of the steps and then you, you kind of let me put those steps together and slowly but surely I was able to do a reverse cart and I was like wow thanks like this is freaking awesome and then the next time I failed and then you told me how to problem solve when I fail and this sort of thing so it's like continuing to grow on your skill set but it depends on how you learn and how many cases you need to do to get to that part where you feel comfortable and you feel comfortable when to say I need to stop or I need to go and figure this out with somebody else or I need to send this patient to somebody who has this skill set and maybe I'll have the opportunity to go and learn from them for that. Yeah. So I want to ask you sort of a, a, an oddball question here, which is talk to me about show jumping. <laughs> so if people don't know, 
Rianne loves to jump horses over large fences <laughs> um, multiple times. And it's actually a pretty dangerous sport, having watched a little bit of it, learned more about it. Um, and we're not going to talk about your jacket, okay? <laughs> but talk to me about what horse jumping does to help you in the cath lab yeah. at work. It's a humbling sport. It's a sport that one day you can be on top and you're just, you're literally doing amazing. And then the next day, you know, you hit the first rail down. And sometimes that I feel that is very much like my, my job too. I, uh, I will have amazing cases. I'll have cases that I'll be like, Oh my God, this is so challenging. And then I get in there and it's, it's done in a couple seconds, you know, well, not really, usually it's like 20, 30 minutes longer than that. But you know, you have those cases that go really, really well that you're scared about and um, you maybe strategize the whole bunch. And then you have those other cases that you think, oh, yeah, this is like a type A lesion. And then you get in there and you uh, have a perforation or dissect or something like this. Like it's so uh, it teaches you so much about humility and, and um, uh, trying to continue to learn and develop your skill set so that you are strategizing, you are planning, you, you have a plan when that first plan fails. And if that first plan fails and you have a complication, you have a way to treat it. To me, show jumping has been a part of my life since I was like two and a half, three years old, and it's kind of grown. And my passion for that has, has continued to be there. And it's a release for me from work because I'm, I'm not, it's my time to be kind of by myself and to be with my horses and to regain a bit of balance where the stress is different because I'm outside. I am enjoying riding and being in the weather and that not worrying about a patient on the table who could potentially uh, have a serious complication or end up going to the ICU or something like this. You know, it's a good mental break for me, but it still keeps me honest and, and allows me to continue to learn and develop and um, get better each time I do it or hope to get better each time I do it. Yeah. So I was talking to Aaron about this, and I think there's a lot of people on that would be interested in your viewpoint since you're, you know, a little bit of the newbies here, mm -hmm. right? You're two and a half years out. Of, you're two and a half years out of fellowship now. Yeah, yeah. I'm almost 26. I can't believe it. I'm so old now. <laughs> um, so bad things are going to happen in the cathode, yeah. right? Yeah. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think it depends on what the bad thing was. Um, and I think I learned this pretty quickly, you know, doing um, the kind of cases that I was fortunate enough to um, learn from you to do. And I think, you know, you bring in a patient, I, I think you even use this, you bring in a stable patient and you make them unstable or make them critically ill or potentially even hurt them to the point that there's no coming back from it. And um it can really be uh, devastating, completely devastating. Um, and I think when you have those cases that maybe you thought were going to be straightforward and this weren't, and then the patient got super sick on you and things just changed rapidly. The most important thing to me is afterwards to review it with the staff to actually have like some sort of formal debrief, whether it's the same day or it's the next day or maybe even later that week, depending on my mental um, state, just to kind of talk through it and just see, hey, could I, could, did I miss something earlier on? Could I have changed this? Could we have done something different? Could we have changed something? Um, and I often reach out to the, the people who I, I confide in again that, you know, I, I need them to hear my story, but I also want them to be honest with me and just say, no, there's nothing you could have done different, but it was going to happen regardless, or yes, this should have been something that you thought of or something that you could have done. You know, I think there's a mental kind of stepwise process I go through to one, think about it myself and then kind of talk about it with other people who are understanding of these kind of cases and, and the complexity of them and the, the what goes into them and, um, maybe help me one way or another as to if I did something 
out of line or I could have done something better or if there was just nothing that would have changed to change the outcome. Um, but I think that is a huge part of this career is really understanding that aspect of it and, and not getting scared to come back to the lab, but you may have to take a day or cancel the rest of your cases or something like that just to kind of regroup. But I've definitely had those cases and I've had nightmares about having those cases and just, you know, it, it takes time. And I don't think you ever, I remember every single patient that that it didn't go as I wanted it to go. And I think about them a lot, um, but you also can't get stuck on them, right? That's, that's, you have to learn from them and make sure that whatever, if you did do something wrong, that you never repeat that. But um, the, there's more patients out there that need our help, right? And Yeah, just, so it's the, the, confidence, the confidence to get back on the horse yeah. and believe that you can pull it off again. Mm -hmm. But it also takes a big emotional toll, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's, it's I'm going to assume that the people you talk to about it are people that have unconditional love for you. Mm -hmm. They get what you do. They're going to critique you, but they're also going to be there to support you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Cause you, you want, you want somebody who's going to understand it, but you also want somebody who's going to be honest with you. Maybe not at the moment and tell you, Oh my gosh, why would you even think that that was a good idea? You know, but you, you need somebody who will, help you to grow and, and be honest with you so that if there was something that could have been avoided that you kind of discuss it and then you're, you won't make that mistake in the future. Yeah. I mean, that's what, what true mentorship should mm -hmm. be about, right? It's unconditional love. It's a kick when you need it. It's a pat when you need it. It's a hug when you need it. Um, but it's a balance of all of those things. And, and I guess I would add in at the end of that is great mentorship is the, aim is that the student's success isn't necessarily what you define as their success. Mm -hmm. It's helping them what, with whatever it is they want. I mean, we talked a little bit about this. You know, we chatted. I don't, I'm sure you're okay if I share this. But, you know, when you were coming out, you knew I wanted you to go to an academic program because mm -hmm. I wanted you to train fellows. Yeah. And it was hard for you to be like, I'm not going to do that. But I, hopefully I did a good job of like, saying, hey, I, you got to do what's best for you. I support you no matter what. And you've done great ever since, right? Yeah. Well, I, there are yep, learning curves. Yep, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I know. Um, and I, that's, again, it comes back to, I don't think that that, I think that was actually really good advice. And I, uh, you know, that's what spurred us to really be working towards starting our fellowship and everything else here. So yeah, I think there's not one way of doing everything. And, you know, I think taking the advice that you get and I trust you, I trust the people that I've had the opportunity to kind of work and get guidance from that are going to continue to help me grow into the the position that I'm in and um, develop, continue to develop and grow. Talk to me about the young guns. Um, so, I'll actually throw that back at you. Uh, what what advice? Yeah, I because you 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 know what what would be the top two things you would give um, somebody who's entering interventional year and somebody who's leaving interventional year as to you know what what should they do during their training versus what should they do coming out of training? Um, I think. Going into training, to have lots of curiosity, and the best question is why. Mm -hmm. Why did the attending make this choice? Why did we pick that device? Why did we not do this? And then figure out how much of that is because that's what they know versus it's a well-thought-out technical, pharmacologic, physics, technology answer and work really hard and always pressing to get a true answer to why. Mm -hmm. And I think that is important. I think the second piece in people in their fellowship 
would be similar to when you get out, which is to practice. Mm -hmm. And you can practice mentally. So you can think about algorithms and like, okay, if this happened in a case, what would I do? If this happened in a case, what would I do? And if your answer is, I would do one thing, you probably need to go do some reading, research, or talk to somebody so you have more options. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other is, you know, we, we talk a lot about this. Like, if you can't do a coronary intervention with less than five of contrast, yeah. that's a skill set everybody should have. But you don't learn that in people with creatinines of three. Yeah. What you do is you take somebody with a normal kidney, wire, put the image down, if you get concerned or you have an issue, you can take a picture. Mm -hmm. And you practice that 10 or 20 times. Except you don't go out and jump a six-foot fence for the first time on a horse, right? They have little one-foot fences and two-foot fences and different things. Yep. And so I think that's really important for both fellows and as you get out. And I think the other piece when you get out is do what you were trained to do. Mm -hmm. don't do what the group does because that's what they've done. Yeah. The flip, the flip side of that is you can't do what you were trained to do. If you don't look thoughtful, look like you're trying to build a team and understand that the culture that you work in has a lot of effect at what patients you can take care of, how you can take care of patients and how you can stay out of hot water doing things mm -hmm. i don't know what do you think about that i think that yeah i think that's excellent advice you know i and i was fortunate you had given me a lot of this kind of coming out and it is easier said than done when you're exiting fellowship and you have been trained somewhere where your skill set may be completely different to how the people are that what group you're going to join you know and i think then that comes down to what I found to work is trying to do a couple cases with them, letting them do some cases with you and facilitate growth, you know, just continuing to learn both from them as well as trying to teach them how maybe you do things too. So, so you're now joined with a lot of, I guess they're, they're calling you guys the third generation of CTO people. Okay. I didn't um, know we had a title, but I, now I feel fancy. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Jared, you know, Frizzell keeps telling you guys the young guys, the, young guys. the third generation. So <laughs> I assume that means I'm the first generation, which makes me really old. Um, but when you guys are talking to each other, because I know you have people in that group you're chatting with, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you guys talk about? Anything, really. You know, sometimes it's life. Um, sometimes it's cases. Sometimes it's how to just, you know... It's, it's very uncommon that a day goes by that I don't get a, a fun little angiogram that says, uh, what's your, what would be your strategy here? <laughs> it's like, Oh Lord, I feel bad for you having to do this. But yeah, the, um, you know, and sometimes it's just like, there's some general questions out there about like, um, you know, job searches, what to like ask on interview day, those sorts of things. Um, so anything very benign from life to as serious as, hard cases that are coming up on their schedules in the next day or so. But yeah, I think again, it's, it's, it's maybe mentorship in a different way. It's just more of like friend guidance um, and trying to, again, maybe not totally answer a question for somebody, but maybe provide options or provide more questions so that they can maybe figure things out a little bit differently. Yes, it, it's but it's it's basically I mean you're gonna call it a friend group yeah. but it's a community yeah. right you're building your community. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you give to people listening about how to build a supportive community? Mm -hmm. And are those people in your practice or are they outside your practice? I think it can be both. I think having people in your practice that are supportive is very good if you're fortunate enough to work with people that will support you but there are a lot of people out there that are trying to do things that are maybe outside the comfort zone of their practice so I think having that support network from people outside of the practice is also important but um, you know I think getting that guidance and um, asking you know if you have challenges that are coming up or 
how to handle situations, like putting it through your community and seeing how people respond. Cause I'm sure you're not the first person to have said challenge or said problem or said case. So somebody's bound to have their opinion or how they, they um, handled the, the task. But um, I think it can be really helpful and, and maybe nobody's had the issue come up before and it might give rise to somebody else down the road who the issue eventually arises for. So I think having people though, both inside and outside your practice are important, but it may not, you may not be as fortunate to always have the support of people in your practice. And sometimes that just means you got to bring people in to proctor you or to help you through different situations. So take that through into being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're going to fail. You're going to have bad things happen. People are going to point fingers. Yeah. And to share it with people means you also have to sort of be vulnerable to not getting it right all the time. Mm -hmm. How did that develop for you over time? Because when I met you, you were maybe not the most vulnerable person I've ever met. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a skill set that I continue <laughs> to work on. No, but I think, I, but I think it's also critical because yeah. you have to, if you don't, if you don't let yourself be vulnerable, um, people for one will think that you never make a mistake. And when you do make a mistake, it's going to hurt that much more. So I think, you know, being honest about mistakes and asking for honest advice about how to handle situations or about how maybe you handled a situation that didn't go the way you wanted to go and, trying to get advice on that is, is important. Um, but I, you, it's hard. For, I think it's super hard for people to be vulnerable and actually admit to being wrong or doing something that maybe wasn't right uh, at the time. And in hindsight is very clear, but um, and I think this is something that affects both young operators and um, older operators. I think anytime we're trying to learn a new skill set or we're trying to do something that we haven't done before issues or challenges, or we may create problems and just making sure that we're asking for help when we need it. That, that I think is like the most critical part of it. The whole thing is I don't, I will never jeopardize a patient's well being because of my ego. I, I learned very quickly from you and you, you know, if you had a large bore, you had an um, alternative access case, asking McCabe to come in to help us out, like anything like this. Um, I learned it very well in that situation. It's like, why do I need to try to do everything really, really amazingly when I have partners that maybe are way better at a certain situation? And just get them in to help me. I have no problem with that. And I think if you do have a problem with that, you have to ask why, why is that the case? And maybe there's something that you can learn from yourself there. So as you now become the mentor, you excited about that challenge? You nervous about that challenge? How do you feel about that? I don't know. I, 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 I'm nervous about that challenge. I don't ever want to let people down, I guess. I don't know. I, I guess I'll, how, you know, what advice would you have for somebody who is early on and, and potentially being looked up to by other people that are also early on? Like, how, how do you, how would you advise people becoming mentors or what good things would you want um, as a young, if you could go back and be a, um, started all over again, would you have changed early on or done differently? I, I, I think, um, I, I wish I had learned um, probably more humility mm -hmm. early on. Um, I wish I had understood some of the barriers that people were going to confront. Yeah. You know, I, when I started, I just thought if I taught people a procedure, they could go off and do the procedure. And I didn't understand how much of the mental cultural aspects of the profession really prevent that from occurring. And the other is, you know, looking back in medicine, you know, I was really fortunate, but most academic physicians are lousy mentors. Yeah. And the reason is because it's they're using you to make them better. Mm -hmm. And I was and I was really blessed, honestly, because the 
I trained in Hartford at the University of Utah. And the people who built that program had built this culture that was always about promoting the next generation and promoting the next person. You know, I worked with Dave Taylor and Dale Renlund and Mike Gilbert and, you know, all those guys, you know, like, hey, let's write a paper and you be first author. And, hey, I've got to do this talk, but I can't be there. So I'm going to have you go give it for me. And they were they were super supportive and they were never threatened that the student might be greater than the teacher. Mm -hmm. They actually sought that out, which I think a lot of academic physicians are so insecure that, you know, if you look around, they really haven't promoted anybody because they're afraid of that. And so I think, you know, what I would tell you is be comfortable in your own shoes Mm -hmm. and and listen, you know, listen to what your mentee wants, right? They're, they're, you know, this is for my marriage counseling, but, you know, one of the problems we had in our communication was narrative. That I brought a narrative to the... ...discussion. She brought a narrative to the discussion. But that jaded the conversation so much that you ended up not really hearing what was going on. And so one of the things I would say is try to eliminate your narrative and try to understand what the narrative is that the mentee's bringing and break that down so that you can communicate in a more authentic way. So you're actually hearing what they're really trying to tell you. You know, I've been misunderstood forever because people sort of assume what I'm trying to say. And it's just because I'm not very good with English language and my facial expressions (laughs) don't line up with my emotions. And, you know, and I'm not, I don't wordsmith and I don't think very well. But I think that's the piece I'd tell you is, I mean, I think, you know, you and Jerry, and Brett and Kate and RSC and I mean Jen Tremel. I mean, there's a lot of really great young people. Katie Dawson, um, you know, Leah Raj, Lindsay Celia, you know, the, the, the list goes on. But the key for all of you as you go from mentor or mentee to mentor is don't think you're all that in a bag of chips. Mm-hmm. And Stay focused on what the person coming to you needs, not what you need from them. Yeah, I think that's great. I guess that, that's what I would probably say. Yeah. So we got about we got about eight minutes if you want to use it. Okay. I promise you, you could ask more questions. So do you or Chewy have anything you want to <laughs> ask me about, about stuff in the last eight minutes? Well, looking back on your career, this is a general question. Looking back on your career, so you did a little bit you know, you did the private practice, you did the academics, you did, um, you know, uh, teaching fellows, teaching attendings, you proctored, you've, you've done, you've done it all. Um, is there anything that you would have done differently now looking at all of that or anything that you would have changed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You want to, we got eight minutes, list. so you better tell us. We got eight minutes. How do we, um, I mean, I, I think the thing that I would tell you, I, I wish I had learned early on to say no. Okay. And and the issue is say no to work, not no to my family. Yeah. And I, this has come up before, and it will probably come up repeatedly on this, but if you try to find, follow the middle path, everything has a good and a bad that comes with it. The middle path is not about perfect happiness or perfect love or perfect anything it's that love has anger and passion has frustration and yes has no. And we often look at the professional yes and don't think about the personal consequence of the no. And I don't know at times that our values are set right in that space. Mm-hmm. And I think, I made a lot of mistakes because I said yes to the wrong things and no to the wrong things. 
and I wish I had sort of learned that balance a little better. I wish that I had gotten more, I, I wish I'd started therapy a long time ago. I wish that the first time I'd started marriage counseling, I'd stayed with it longer. Mm -hmm. Um, because I didn't really get to the, to the real demons, to the real problems, to the real issues. Um, and you know, we, you know, from the outside, I looked really successful from the inside. I was a hot mess. Um, and I've, you know, I've heard a lot of my friends along the way at times because I said things that I thought were funny or I thought were helpful, but they were devastating in the way they took it because I didn't under, I did not think through the consequence of how they would see what I was saying. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the, it's the perception piece, right? I, I might tell you something, but you don't hear it the way that I mean it to come out. Um, and I think the last 18 months, it's something I've worked on. Um, and it's also, I think, you know, when I drink, which is a lot less now, but if I drink and especially if I have more than I honestly should have, which it still occasionally happens and I regret that filter and that thought process gets worse. Yeah. Um, and that, that honestly came up for me recently. You know, I said something to somebody that is tragically hurt them. I don't even really remember what I said. I feel horrible about it. I can't take it back. I can apologize and I can do all that stuff. But, you know, the reality is you wish you'd never done it. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think being more thoughtful about what you're going to say, when you're going to say it, how you're going to say it um, is important. And even if it's a longstanding friend or even if it's a longstanding person, you know, um, you, you really got to be curious as to what they're thinking. You've got to be really curious as to how they're going to see it. And you've got to be really curious and careful that the intent that you're trying to get through is actually how they hear it. Yeah. No, I think that's really important. So, all right. Well, you got any other probing ones there, young lady, oh. or do you want to? No, I enjoyed, this is great. I really enjoyed it. I feel like I learned even more from you tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really, really appreciate you being on, Rianne. I'm sure at some point I'm going to have Jeremy on as well. Oh, wonderful. Um, because I think, I know he's a bit of an introvert, a yep. really quiet dude, but, you know, he's like E.F. Hutton when he speaks. People should listen because <laughs> he's really thoughtful. Yes. And I know he's also gone through a lot of, you know, he's on a journey. And so I, at some point, would love to talk to him. Again, for everybody out there, thank you for spending the time. Uh, again, I'm, I'm sure I'm getting this wrong at times and I'm not got all the answers, but hopefully we can work together to get better and make the profession a little bit better. And, um, you know, that again, if you want to listen to these, they're on a website, www.drjourneytobetter.com. And uh, if you have suggestions for us about things you want to hear about, stuff you want to talk about, please let us know. Thanks again for spending your time with us. It's really appreciated. Thank you. Have a good night. Good night. Bye, Ray. Bye.